0: Hello from the children of planet Earth. 3,
1: 2, 1, We have a Hi, I'm Dr. Alan Duffy.
0: And I'm Dr. Amanda Bauer.
1: We're astronomers.
0: And in this podcast, we talk about the astronomy that excites us.
1: Like, every atom in the universe that isn't hydrogen or helium was forged by a star.
0: You know that feeling you get when you realize that almost your entire body is made up of atoms that were once inside stars? Yeah, that's what we call cosmic vertigo. Five, four, three, two, one.
1: One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one, enter test.
0: There is a star in the constellation Orion called Betelgeuse. If you look at Betelgeuse, it appears very red. And the reason it's red is because its temperature has decreased. It's got a low temperature, and that's because it's at the end of its life. And at the end of its life, a star as big as Betelgeuse will explode. And the exciting thing is that this star will explode as a supernova any time now. Now, when I mean any (laughs) time, I do mean any astronomical time. So it could be tomorrow. It could be a million years from now. And actually, that's a pretty narrow time frame within Mm. astronomy. (laughs) Now, if it goes off tomorrow, that means two things. One, it actually exploded 430 years ago, because that's how far away it is, 430 light years. But it also means that it will be bright enough, because it's not that far away, that we'll be able to see it as bright as a full moon for a few weeks in our sky. It might even get bright enough that we can see it during the day. So I am all for the explosion of Betelgeuse. Yes. (laughs)
1: But there's no danger
0: from that. No, there's absolutely no danger. We're far enough away from it that we're not going to get zapped by any sort of radiation. And actually, there are no stars big enough to explode within a distance that would damage the Earth. So don't worry, everybody.
1: Or, at least, you know, for several million years.
0: At least for that. We're not going to die by that. (laughs) (laughs) What is a star?
1: A wise warthog. Come
0: on! Ever wonder what those sparkly dots are up
1: there? Once told me...
0: I don't wonder, I know.
1: ...that a star...
0: What are they? ...is... They're fireflies.
1: Fireflies.
0: Fireflies that got stuck up in that big bluish black thing. Oh, gee. I always thought they were balls of gas burning billions of miles away. Pumba, with you, everything's gas.
1: No way, I'm thinking of the Lion King. <laughs> Sorry. So
0: I was wondering where you're going with that one.
1: A star is a giant ball of gas, mostly hydrogen helium. It's gravity is enough to bind all of that gas together and in fact squeeze the gas close enough, those atoms close enough deep in the core under immense pressures and temperatures, so close that the hydrogen actually fuses to form helium.
0: And that's well, the key that's right it. there. As soon as you've got hydrogen fusion, you've got a star.
1: That's it. It's that simple. Yep, we're done. (laughs) (laughs) That's a Now Uh, the reason
0: the star stays together is you've got all of this mass, all of these atoms pulled together through gravity, so that's an inward pull, but then as soon as you've got that fusion, you've got all of this pressure pushing out. You've got this light created from these nuclear fusions, so you've got this balance between gravity pulling in and the fusion reactions pushing out, and that delicate balance Lasts for billions and billions of years.
1: (laughs) Well, it can last for billions of years. The bigger they are, the faster they burn, and we'll get to that later. But if you weigh your two hydrogen atoms and then you weigh your helium atom, the helium has slightly less mass. And Einstein's equations, equals mc squared, tells us you can take a little bit of mass and you can make a lot of energy from that. Mm -hmm. And that's the energy that Amanda's talking about that pushes outwards. As those particles of light, those photons, try to travel light, they're constantly bashing into the gas and you're constantly getting this outward force.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) the star forms from some gas cloud, collapses down, it gets dense enough and hot enough that you ignite hydrogen. The hydrogen fuses into helium. So you've got this delicate balance of gravity in and fusion out, and then the hydrogen turns into helium. So you're starting to grow heavier and heavier atoms in the core of these stars.
1: As Amanda says, the hydrogen goes to helium. The helium will then be fused as part of the CNO cycle.
0: Carbon, nitrogen, oxygen.
1: And we will get successively heavier elements, but critically, we're getting ever less energy energy. Sooner or later, the star is basically going to run out of material to continue to fuse. And
0: As soon as your campfire runs out of logs, it just slowly burns down, cinders go out, and then your fire ends. The same thing happens to a star, but the way that it ends is a bit different depending on kind of one thing, and that's the mass of the star.
1: Mm-hmm. We have stars of different sizes, different colors, different bizarre ends to their lives. The only thing that matters for all of that is the mass of the star. Mm -hmm. If we look into the center of our sun, and well, actually we know how much energy is being created because we see that, and we can figure out how much mass must be converted or lost, essentially in that conversion from hydrogen into helium, to produce that much energy. And it ends up being about 4 billion kilograms of mass every second. Now, Amanda, what is 4 billion kilograms?
0: 4 billion kilograms doesn't really um, have much of a tangible feel to me, but we can say that it is one Pyramid of Giza.
1: Or 10 Empire State Buildings.
0: Or 40 million adult kangaroos. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's my unit of choice.
0: <laughs> our unit of choice, no longer relative to our sun's mass, but how many millions of kangaroos? I
1: just don't understand. If it's not put in context of kangaroos, I'm just lost. <laughs> For those, uh, perhaps if we have some international listeners, if you've never seen a male red kangaroo, these things are terrifying in size. They are stacked. (laughs) These things are ripped. 40 million of them. No thanks. Yeah. In fact, that's probably about the population of Australia, right? Like in terms of kangaroo, I actually think it's something. It probably
0: is. They outnumber humans, don't they?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. They're coming to get us.
0: Well, when I go observing at the Anglo-Australian telescope, you have to walk between the telescope back to the lodge. And usually when I go outside, I'm looking up, so I'm not really paying attention to the route that I'm on. And one time I accidentally bumped into a kangaroo. No. In the pitch black, and we both sort of jumped back and looked at each other in complete shock and then slowly went around. (laughs) (laughs) Don't punch me. Oh, my God. We both survived.
1: Said the kangaroo to you, right? (laughs) Could just see your fist clenching?
0: Now, I want to say, when that energy is created in the fusion in the center of a star, the escaping of that energy actually takes a little while. It takes about a million years to get out of the core.
1: It's just essentially, it's constantly bumping. It is like the thickest fog you could ever imagine for that poor little bit of light to make its way
0: out. Yeah. Okay, so two hydrogen fuse into a helium, and then you've got that little packet of energy that really wants to escape the core, but it bounces into all these other hydrogen atoms. So it's constantly getting reprocessed and reprocessed and takes hundreds of thousands to a million years bouncing around in the core till it finally escapes the star and shoots off into interstellar space. Now, for a photon that escapes, it actually takes eight minutes traveling at the speed of light to reach us on Earth even after it's been bumping around in the center of the star for a very, very long time. So if the star explodes, which it won't, our sun will not explode. But if it did, we wouldn't actually know for eight minutes until the light reached us.
1: You would then have a very bright experience. You'd be like, oh yeah, that was the end of life. Um, (laughs) I love the idea that these photons are just taking so long. We're sort of thinking back to first moments of humanity, essentially, as a species. That light that we're seeing and that final huge distance to get to us took the last eight minutes. It's like any journey. The last bit's always the quickest.
0: So let's continue to talk about our sun a little bit because it's so close we can study it in detail knowing that a lot of these things that we've discovered on it are happening in distant stars but we just can't see it in detail because the stars are so far away. So the sun when you look at it through a telescope and a filter do not Look at the sun directly with your eyes. Don't look at the sun. Don't look at the sun. You see things that we call spots, star spots.
1: This is done best by having a little sheet of paper and putting a little hole in it to create a pinhole camera. And just having that sunlight shine through that, you'll see the bright circle of the sun projected, and you'll actually see exactly what a manuscript Spots. Just black little regions on the surface of them. That is totally the easiest and completely safest way to go sun observing because you never want to look directly at the sun.
0: Don't look directly at the sun. These dark patches, they come and go. The same patches are not always there and they're created because of the magnetic field of the sun. The sun spins and these magnetic field lines start to get tangled and tangled and tangled as the sun spins around and so the more they get tangled they kind of pop out of the surface and. Right where they pop out is where we see these sunspots. Dark sunspots.
1: But actually, if you were to take that parcel of gas somehow magically, get your hand, take it out to some distance away from the sun, it would actually be glowing just as brilliantly yellow, luminously white. It is tremendously hot gas. It's just relative to the rest of the star surface. It has cooled. It's it's a little dimmer as a result, and we perceive it as black.
0: Yeah, it's all relative. It's all relative. <laughs> So the sun goes through an 11-year magnetic cycle. And so the number of sunspots that we see increases. There are more and more and more as the magnetic activity increases and increases. And so at the end of this cycle, all the magnetic field lines kind of pop back into their nice order. And we don't see as many sunspots.
1: And that's because the actual magnetic field of the sun is flipping. Mm -hmm. The entire freaking north pole, south pole has just flipped crazy that is insane
0: <laughs> just flips over like ah uh. so when a sunspot happens and there's say a prominence and you can kind of see this evidence of these tango magnetic fields above the surface mm. of the sun when that prominence this little loop breaks it sends off all of these particles into space and if they're pointed directly at the earth and that causes quite a bit of reaction on the earth the earth's magnetic field takes all of these charged particles channels them to the north and south poles and we see the aurora, but it can also affect our satellites.
1: Yeah. This is a bad news day. If you are a satellite (laughs) operator or an astronaut as well, I mean, it's not super great Hmm. if you're up there, a coronal mass ejection, one of these solar storms, when that prominence breaks and it fires off billions of tons of super energetic particles. That will fry the electronics of your satellites. You have to essentially shut it down and just hope for the best. Mm. These satellites cost billions of dollars. You really don't want them to be taken out. It's never going to hurt you here on Earth. Just total safety warning. Don't worry about solar storms. Instead, you get this beautiful night sky. Well, actually, the Earth's atmosphere heated. What we're seeing as the aurora is not the particles from space necessarily. It's actually all of the energy that they've dumped into the Earth's atmosphere, caused it to glow like a neon light in the kitchen or in Vegas or wherever. And that's how you're getting different colors or different atoms in our atmosphere, hmm. shining from the energy of that explosion that's just slammed into the Earth's magnetic field and set it ringing like a bell.
0: Yeah. Well, if there's going to be a period of very slow solar activity, then that's when I want to go up to space. <laughs> so, the sun, not just a peaceful glowing orb up in the sky, lots of stuff is happening that we've been able to measure over time.
1: Yeah, even that image of a peaceful thing, it is not, it is an uncontrolled <laughs> nuclear bomb in space. We're like, Oh, it's, what a beautiful sunrise, as this 4 billion kilos of mass is constantly being churned in this furnace.
0: Well, let's just be happy it's as far away as it is, and not any closer.
1: Yeah, and look, some stars are far more vigorous than others we have. Weirdly, actually, the smaller stars can often be more temperamental in that sense. They can fire off these coronal mass ejections far more regularly, and far larger solar storms. So. A star is a nuclear bomb, it is weird that they can be so stable for so long.
0: But time is all relative, so stable for so long, relative to our lifetime. I mean, we don't live for any time whatsoever, compared to the lifetime of a sun. Our star is about halfway through its lifetime. It's been burning this hydrogen in its core for about 5 billion years, and it's going to burn it steadily for about another 5 billion years. And our sun is just one kind of average star, Actually, most stars are a heck of a lot less massive than our sun. Yep. Yep. And there are a few, the bigger and bigger you get, the hotter and brighter they burn. And so they have pretty short lifetimes and they're not as common.
1: Yeah. So this idea of the gravity squeezing the core so that it burns the fuel faster, so it can push back outwards against the core so you get that balance, it means that the more massive the star, the far more pressure you get in the center, the far more it's squeezed. So even though there's more fuel, you're burning it up way quicker. So we go from the sun, as Amanda says, like 10 billion years. But if you go to something that's a tenth of the size of the sun, still far bigger than all the planets put together, this thing is effectively infinite or, or you know, yeah, it's ever, I mean, like, it lasts like a trillion years. years. Yeah.
0: And I mean, this is kind of theoretical. Our universe is only 13.7 billion years. Yeah. So these things will last a lot longer than the age of our universe so far. So Yep,
1: yeah, we have no idea if yeah. they do end in this way, right? Keep watching. <laughs> it would be a riveting sight. Oh yes. Oh it's still watching. Exactly the same as it still was. Still watching. Yeah, yeah. Still watching. still watching. Still
0: watching. So let's start at our sun. The end life of our sun. Now as it starts burning and getting rid and using up all of its hydrogen and turning it into helium, at the point when you don't have that hydrogen fusion pushing out, gravity starts to win and pushes in. So your central region condenses a little bit and you actually start to lose the outer layers of your star, so that hydrogen kind of puffs up and starts getting released from the star as your center core condenses and condenses. And when it condenses enough, then you get high enough temperature and pressure and so you ignite the next round, a shell of hydrogen burning. This process happens over and over, and you get the release of lots of gas in the outer shells until you have no more gas, no more fuel, and the star just kind of slowly peters out. And that really dense core that's left at the center is what we call a white dwarf. This is the end of our sun. A white dwarf, which will last for trillions and trillions and trillions of years.
1: The rest of the envelope of that gas has certainly engulfed Mercury and Venus, has at the very least incinerated the Earth, probably also engulfed the Earth, and may well have even taken out Mars. So the bloating of our sun as it ages, as most of us do as we age, we, we put on...
0: The... <laughs> Speak for yourself, man. Yeah. <laughs> My bloating came because I had a kid. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so as our sun ages and bloodside, its waistband increases, that's going to do untold damage to the solar system, and in particular, the inner world. It's actually going to put out a lot more energy and heat, which mm. means that, yes, bad for the oceans of Earth, which will all boil off.
0: Oh, we've got about a billion years.
1: Yeah, and we will be packing our bags yet. But in particular, the moons, icy moons around Jupiter, Saturn, they'll actually melt. They'll be, for a time at least, in this far-off distant solar system, any potential life might be residing on these moons, watching a really bloated, horrible, reddish, sickly, deathly sun, thinking, that was a good sunrise. (laughs) Wasn't that pretty?
0: (laughs) Now, a star that is bigger than the sun, if it's up to about eight times as massive as the sun, this is the sort of evolution that it will go through, and it will end its life as a white dwarf, having killed all of its planets. Once you hit that eight times the mass of our sun limit, that's when things start to get really interesting as the hydrogen in the core starts to run out. The hydrogen stops igniting, and so the core collapses, but then bigger and bigger elements, all the way up to iron, start to get fused. So bigger and bigger and bigger elements, you've got this running out of your fuel and then collapsing and increasing your pressure and temperature, and then the next phase of of building atoms occurs. Now, what happens right at the end? That's the very exciting bit. You've got this final outer shell of all of this gas that starts to collapse, but it can't collapse down into the core because the core is so dense. In just a matter of seconds, the core shrinks from roughly 5,000 miles across to just a dozen, and the temperature shoots up to about 100 billion degrees or more. So the outer layers of the star start to initially collapse along with the core, but it gets so dense and so hot that it rebounds and explodes out and just releases an enormous amount of energy. And what we see in this reaction is called a supernova.
1: And what's left behind in that central core, when it was our sun, we formed a white dwarf, which is, you know, a good fraction of the mass of our sun and something about the size of the Earth. Now you have even more mass crushed to a far smaller scale. And now we're talking essentially a few dozen kilometers or so across.
0: Yep, and if you take a spoonful of this, it's as much matter as Everest, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, so then it would fall through your spoon because it's (laughs) unbelievably dense. We owe our very existence to the most destructive events in the known universe, these exploding stars, because they don't just release all of that energy and light, but they also release the elements that they've been fusing.
0: They've been churning these elements bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and then providing them to us through this massive explosion or the slow release of their outer shell as our star will do eventually.
1: And that recycling process, that reintroduction of these beautiful, new, newly forged elements back into the galactic ecosystem, the interstellar medium, then makes its way into a new generation of stars. Potentially five billion years ago, that was our sun. Those elements then find their way into growing clumps of dust, which we covered last time. Those dust particles merge to give us planets, and those planets ultimately Begin to have life on them.
0: All due to stars exploding, generations and generations of stars exploding.
1: And there is a really cool website where you can figure out how much of your body is made up of stardust. Sagan's idea of how much of the material in your body by mass is hydrogen, which has come from the Big Bang, and that is 10%. So, in my case, eight kilos of Big Bang material. In my body and then
0: everything else was churned in yeah. the core of the stars
1: it's incredible all of the carbon that makes up your cells the iron that's come from an exploding white dwarf mostly is that
0: pretty <laughs> much locked in <laughs> yeah i think so
1: it's only from that moment
0: mm, yeah. yeah and the oxygen that bonds with that hydrogen that's straight out of the big bang that forms the water that is a large chunk of your body.
1: Or your oxygen and breathing. These elements were formed deep in the heart at unimaginable pressures and temperatures and through an even more stupendous crazy explosion has found its way out into you. And you should be grateful for these bizarre quirks of nature that find the extremes forming the very elements required for what is a very relaxed and comfortable existence sitting at 25 degrees centigrade
0: enjoying the sunrises enjoying the sunsets
1: we are weird <laughs> <laughs> it is a very strange idea that we can talk about life and look back on the universe around us if you think of the incredible sequence of weird steps of quirks of physics and chemistry that then give rise to complexity
0: and even the basic things like the charge of the electron or the mass of the proton, any of these things would be a little bit different and we wouldn't be here.
1: Which will lead us to an idea about potential new universes in a future episode. But we should be grateful that we're sitting in the one that we live in today that allows the chemistry of life and the creation of new elements through the physics of stars. Uh, uh, uh.
0: Australian Aboriginal cultures have had stories of the stars for nearly 60,000 years, making them pretty much the oldest star-storytelling astronomers in the entire world.
1: Yeah, I think they have justifiable claim to be called the first astronomers. Too. Oh, fantastic. Those stories have been faithfully passed down orally, across tens of thousands of years and it's actually quite an astounding level of knowledge of the night sky but also the practical uses that that knowledge was put to are really quite I still feel like it's quite an unknown story certainly to you know the west and and European heritage.
0: It's so separated from our current modern day-to-day life I don't look up at the stars and I'm able to recognize really what season it is or the aboriginals would say oh now it's this time for harvest or these birds are laying these eggs because this constellation is in the sky rising at this time. And Mm -hmm. so they would use that knowledge as part of their survival, their general living.
1: Yeah, up in the top end in the north of Australia, the Aboriginal people had links to the moon where they would look at the phase of the moon, so how full it was, and would be able to make a prediction for the tide. They were saying this, using this knowledge to better understand when to go fishing and, and when to go out in boats. At the time when the godfather of modern astronomy, Gallup, was categorically saying there was no link between the tides and the moon because that's absurd, this thing is up mm. there, and how would it ever have impact? So the Australian Aboriginal astronomers were not just understanding that connection, but actually using it to predict and getting it right.
0: There is a story of the constellation Orion by the Yongu people in the Northern Territory of Australia. Instead of Orion, they call it Julpan. And in Julpan, the three stars that we know as Orion's belt represent the three brothers fishing in a canoe. Now, these brothers are chasing a group of sisters, which is the Pleiades constellation, which is usually what I call the teeny tiny little dipper. (laughs) A bunch of blue stars (laughs) all together, and if you look at them, they kind of do look like a tiny little dipper. This is a story that's very similar to the European Heritage of the hunter Orion chasing the seven sisters, but it's quite a bit older.
1: Yeah, arguably, you know, several thousands, tens of thousands of years old. The story of the jewel pan is instructive because essentially, when you see those three stars, those three brothers in their canoe rising above the morning sky, that only happens at a very special time of year in Australia. That actually happens during the monsoon, the onset of the monsoon. And the entire story the young people tell in this is basically a warning about these brothers ignoring the elders' advice and going out and fishing at a time when the elders were saying, there's storms around, you have to be careful, you can't go out. And they ignore their elders' advice, and then they get cast up into the sky. And there's a various um, levels of that story that include cultural heritage and taboo and breaking sacred law. But then there's also the very good advice to listen to your elders, because usually they <laughs> know more than you. Exactly. And this is a constant reminder that you see those stars at that point early in the morning and you now know the chances are the storms are potentially coming and don't go to sea. It's just an incredibly effective way to remember these kind of stories. Mm. And. That's because humans, we remember stories. We don't remember mm. lists of facts. I can tell you right now, my physics lessons. <laughs> <laughs> seeing how I mark my shoes, they don't like lists of facts, but they like if you can build it into a narrative, a story, or at least just a way of understanding the system to better understand the system, the setup. That's what a story is.
0: Yeah, it's not about memorizing facts.
1: Yeah, it's that not is not the what the story
0: of how it goes.
1: That's all the Cosmic Vertigo we've got for you this time.
0: I'm Amanda Bauer.
1: And I'm Alan Duffy. And this is produced by Joel Werner.
0: In the next episode, this happens.
1: So it goes up in pitch. So it's... No. Oh, I did it the wrong way. So it goes up in pitch.
0: You want to start a little lower. (laughs) So you can actually get it to
1: rise. I know. This is awful. This is why I
0: use the train. (laughs) that feeling you get when you realize the moon used to be so much closer that it lit up the night sky as bright as an office?
1: When you realize that there's an object out there that wouldn't just rip you apart, it would erase your very existence?
0: When you realize there could be alien life swimming in the oceans on a nearby moon?
1: That feeling you get when you realize that the sun is only 20 galactic years old and will be dead by the time it's 40?
0: That's what we call cosmic vertigo. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.